T2 are T done differently. Celebrating difference to make a difference and creating a generation of tea lovers to unite the world for good. Now this month, the gang at T2 have launched their new gifting range, which has everyone in mind. You know, tea newbies and aficionados alike will really get a kick out of opening up a T2 gift. You know, there's something on offer for everyone, every taste bud, style, and preference. So no matter what your budget or whatever the occasion is, whether it's a, a tiny treat just to say thank you, right up to showstoppers for life's big moments. Whatever the occasion is, you can say it with T2. And you can find out all about their new gifting range at t2t.com, which will take you straight to the gifts to find out more. And just remember, a cup for me, a cup for you, T2. This week on The Quiet Life. But let's face it, without the bees doing the pollination, we would be in extreme difficulty feeding the population we have now. People say two out of every three spoonfuls you eat is pollinated by bees. Whatever way you want to measure it, you know, that's fine. There are some crops which aren't pollinated by bees at all. So, you know, don't run away with the idea that bees are pollinating everything because nature's found other ways, but they are essential. Welcome back to The Quiet Life as we expand conversations that matter and elevate the value of our communities and what we can do to help lift them up. Learn with us as we seek to do our part to help change the world for the better. Now is the time to lean in, to listen, and act. Join us. Hey guys, and welcome to this week's episode of The Quiet Life. As always, I'm your host, Michael James Wong, and back to talk about different conversations with inspiring and amazing people about topics that I think, uh, we think, are really important to discuss right now in the world today. Now, as many people know, there is a big conversation going on about sustainability, which is a huge focus and and a huge need for us to put some attention onto it, whether it's human sustainability, environmental sustainability, And this week, we're going to talk about uh, bee sustainability, but also in that context of what it actually means to the greater sense of our world and our ecosystem. So today, guys, I'm joined by Dale Gibson, who is the founder of Bermondsey Street Bees, which is a sustainable beekeeping practice right here on the rooftops of London. Now, in his own words, he feels that he has a duty to care for the bees as if they were his very own and believe that their interests uh, are a paramount concern to the importance, and it goes far beyond just the honey we enjoy, but actually how it impacts our world as a whole. Dale, welcome. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, Michael. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. Absolutely. I'm sitting here, just uh, the bees that are on our rooftop here, just about 10 feet above my head. So uh, it's interesting that we have a pretty close connection with them, even though they're not actually showing up at this time of year to be interviewed themselves. <laughs> well, absolutely. And, and as well, I mean, when we were doing the prep for this, uh, for this episode, it was really, really fascinating for all of us on the team, because it's one of those things that we all have a very strong connection to, as in everyone knows bees and has an, ex- you know, a personal experience with them, good or bad. But there's a lot more that lives beneath the surface of just bees make honey and bees kind of uh, fly around in the gardens in the neighborhood. So what I wanted to talk to you about today, which I think is going to be a great way to get us started, is just simply for you, Dale, why bees? How did this all come to be? Sure. Well, um, I think it's one of those gentle evolutionary things that happens in life. 
it wasn't a sudden uh, conversion or the scales falling from my eyes that I needed to stop working in finance, um, stop being at my desk at six o'clock in the morning and wearing the same sort of clothes, same sort of meetings and carry on, whether it was midsummer or Christmas Eve, doing those four years ago where I decided to leave that behind and to pursue the other sort of side hustle that I'd been pursuing since 2006, which was beekeeping, um, because I wanted to do something different in the next 10 years than what I'd just spent 30 years doing. Right. And it seemed to me that um, uh, getting a little bit closer to the natural uh, environment in an urban place like London, getting doing that through the smallest creatures that people rarely notice around them. And yet bees have been here for 80 million years. You know, we showed up 250,000 years just walking upright. So right, um, right. we just don't see them as they're around us in the air. If you put a beehive in the middle of the street, suddenly people will see bees. That's just human psychology. But if you just have people going about their ordinary business, they don't know that there are bees in the locality. On our rooftop, uh, during high summer, there's over three quarters of a million bees living there. Nobody three quarters sees. of a million? Uh-huh. So we have um, you know, eight hives uh, each with up to sort of 75,000, 80,000 bees in each. You know, you're heading towards three quarters of a million bees. Uh, in a small urban rooftop environment, nobody sees the bees. They don't show up on people's radar screens. They are just there. They're going about their business. No bee ever left a hive with any intention other than going to seek food or water to bring back to the hive. Nobody goes to mess with human beings. That is not part of their DNA or their BNA, as we might call it. <laughs> but let me just give you a quick thought about um, what's on people's minds at the moment about bees. People are excited about pee bees. People want to save the bees. But here's the thing. There are lots of different sorts of bee. In right. the UK alone, there are 275 different varieties of bee. And only one of those is the honeybee. So when we say save the bees, guess what? Actually, the honeybees, not just in the UK, but globally, are doing pretty well, according to the UN hive numbers, which go up every year. According to us in London, the British Beekeeping Association tells us, uh, and the bee-based um, government database tell us, that there are 4,000 beehives in a 10-kilometer radius of me in central London. Well, that's a lot of bees. It's probably the densest city in the world. It's certainly the most densely populated city in Europe for honeybees. So that's great for honeybees, but hang on. That also means that it's overcrowded to a large extent. And those sure. bees are eating the same food that the other 274 species of bees are eating and the same as pollinators like butterflies and, and, and moths and you know, all these other pollinators have got the same food sources. So having so many bees in London means that you might have to save the other bees to the extent of planting more food for them to eat because the honeybees are so successful. So there's a, there's a paradox here that save the bees sometimes means that there are lots of bees that are doing badly for other bees and that humans have to find a balance that allows the natural ecology to persevere. So that's really, uh, co complex. Uh, it's really about sustainability and human beings adjusting their behavior to be 
appropriate to right. the ecology and the environment that we're living in today. Sure. I mean, that's really, really fascinating. And, and as well for me personally, I mean, I don't have a huge knowledge of bees, but I appreciate the fact that there is a huge awareness around Save the Bees. There's a, a big aspect of bees being vital to the ecology of, uh, of how our, our lives and our ecosystem exists. I guess if we take it a very simplistic level for the moment, why are actually bees important, say, more than other animals, or maybe not more than other animals, but why, what value do they add to the overall ecosystem? Yeah, sure. So um, bees are essentially pollinators. So what you have with uh, an active, healthy bee population is more successful flowering, fruiting, and therefore um, uh, food for all sorts of creatures. So the bees get fed with nectar, which is their carbohydrate, the chestnut trees, the uh, ivy, the um, uh, St. John's wort bushes, all to produce more buds, more pods of actually seed and uh, uh, perhaps more nuts on a hazel. So the point is that that means that other animals can get fed. So birds can eat the berries, small mammals can eat the nuts, uh, and human beings can take the benefit of the pollination effect in agriculture, which means you know, people have various metrics for this. But let's face it, without the bees doing the pollination, uh, we would be in extreme difficulty feeding the population we have now. Right, People right. say two out of every three spoonfuls you eat is pollinated by bees. You know, whatever way you want to measure it, you know, that's fine. There are some crops which aren't pollinated by bees at all. You know, the grasses, things like wheat, uh, are not bee pollinated. They're wind pollinated. So you, know, you don't run away with the idea that bees are pollinating everything because nature's found other ways in the ecological system of making pollination happen. But they are essential for many fruits, lots of vegetables, and a whole lot of the world around us that you know, we, we don't take in. You know, when we walk past a tree, we see a tree trunk. What we don't see is a huge canopy of flowers and food in that tree, which can be the equivalent of in many square meters of field or wildflower. And that's in a city and happening above your head. You just don't know it's there, but it's always there. And it's a very important source of food for bees. Let me just tell you one thing which will surprise you. The pollen on our rooftops analyzed for its sources. And over 90% of the pollen that's in our honey comes from trees or shrubs. That's just 10% from flowers, you know, wildflowers. If you'd ask any member of the public, they would say, oh, yeah, I'm sure that wildflowers are the most important thing for honeybees. And the answer is, well, guess what? They're important in the infrastructure generally. They're important for all sorts of bees and pollinators as an adjunct. But for honeybees, absolutely key resources are trees and shrubs. And guess why? Because they evolved in trees. They evolved in holes in trees, and that's where they oh, come from. Oh. So there we go. Just a few things that might surprise people who are just seeing the headlines of Save the Bees and So Wildflowers. There's complexity in this. Those are not bad ideas. There just is more to be said than just those simple headlines. Mm. And I think that's really important as well. I mean, that we don't take things just at big headlines or just at face value, very much because this conversation about sustainability isn't just 
there, there's not just one answer. Everything has to fit together like puzzle pieces, whether it's, you know, the, the I guess the small nature of how bees, bees pollinate and, and kind of move throughout cities and nature without even realizing it. But at the same time, you know, human sustainability that in many ways relies on bees doing their job or being productive and being successful in that pollination because that circle goes all the way back to the food, as you said. Yeah, and if you think about honeycomb, you know, as an item, so bees use wax, which they make from their own bodies, to make honeycomb. That's that crunchy stuff that you see the honey yeah, yeah. stored in. So the, the honeycomb for the bees is, is a store for them, so it's like their larder. It's also their nursery, because the baby bees are born inside comb uh, and developed there. And it's also a communication system for them, because they communicate through vibration in the hive. So it's vitally important. And they actually make something useful with their bodies, which no human being I've ever met has produced anything particularly useful from their body. Um, so they make wax from their body and they make royal jelly from glands in the head, which feed the queen bee, super concentrated sugar. Not that I would recommend human beings gobbling that up because it's a very um, invasive uh, uh, practice for bees. So um, what, what I'm sort of leading up to here is that the honeycomb is the original luxury food that humankind would have found on this planet when sure. we started walking upright. It's very high energy because honey is uh, predominantly uh, sugars, but sugars in a condition which are very digestible by the human system with enzymes, trace uh, minerals and vitamins. And it's a durable resource because honey in a comb will last. It'll last as long as it until you break the comb, and then it will start to um, react with the elements around it. But until then, it's inert. So it's a great food resource you can store. And guess what? If it does start uh, reacting with the elements around it, like water and the atmosphere, it will turn into alcohol. So for, the, for a caveman, that's not a bad deal to have that as yeah. one takeaway. It costs you a high price to get it. You know, you have to be prepared to whether the um, bee is disagreeing with you if you're a caveman. We have much more civilized methods of only extracting surplus honey from the hive. If you think of bees as livestock rather than as pets, which if you're a serious beekeeper, you will, you have to assume that your livestock is the most important thing you have in your life. Mm. And that if that livestock is going to thrive, it's going to need to be nourished and it's going to need to be nourished, and it's going to need to be content. So the bees having a vast food resource to see them through the winter is very important. If you take a surplus of honey away, that isn't going to hurt the bees. Here's the thing about honeybees. They're the one single bee in this country which overwinters as a live colony. So they store the honey so they have sufficient food resources for this mass of 20,000 bees in winter, going up to 70 or 80,000 in summer, to survive through the winter. So they need to do several things to do that. They need to gather in sufficient stores. They have no off button. They don't say, guys, we've got 50 pounds, 50 pounds is about sort of 25 kilos of honey stored up here. Everyone take it easy from here on in. You know, we're just going to put our feet up and do some sunbathing or some line dancing or something like that. <laughs> they just don't do that. They just say, guys, if there's anything out there, we're going to go and get it. And some years, that will produce a surplus crop beyond what honeybees need to get through the winter and the early spring. And that is then available for beekeepers to take responsibly and sustainably. It isn't always there. Uh, we've told people who we manage hives for this year, there's no honey for you. It's all staying with the bees this year. We can't take anything away. And they say, 
actually, that's the right answer because we're into this for the sustainability aspect, for the ecology. We want to you know, a net biodiversity gain in everything we do. So not taking the honey is a big move in the direction of understanding why that matters. And I think that's really important as a thing to recognize as well, because we live in a, in, let's say, a very vacuous society where we take and take and take and take, and we are just maybe programmed to take what's of value, take what we can use, take what we can sell, take what we can parlay somewhere else. And I think it goes to show, you know, there is not just the, dare I say, humanity to say, you know what, not right now, not this year for you know, the, the longer vision, the bigger opportunity or the overall, you know, sustainable ecology of our environments, because I'm very much, you know, I would dare I say that if you then took everything from the hive one year, it's not just a knock on for one year, it's probably a big systematic knock on. Yeah, it's like a farmer eating his seed corn over the winter. Well, guess what? When spring comes, and you've got nothing to sow. You're not a farmer anymore. Mm. Um, so I think we have to be very uh, clear that there is a balance to be struck. It's a two-way street and um, you know, only responsible beekeepers who understand the biology of the bees, who understand the bees' natural cycle and their needs over that cycle, should really be doing a great job for those bees and teaching less experienced beekeepers how that all works. There's a huge mentoring tradition in beekeeping which passes down knowledge from one generation to the other. And having been mentored, um, I'm now very happy to uh, apply uh, what little I've been able to assess and uh, uh, absorb about bees over the years to people who are coming into the whole craft of beekeeping. Absolutely. And actually is a really nice question for me to follow on from that when you talk about this as a craft. And I know you originally, when we spoke at the beginning of the show, you talked about it was a side project. It came as a shift in life, in career and transition. And it really speaks to this idea of passion. Now, where I find this really unique is, you know, maybe for a lot of people listening, like myself, you know, we've never had the most pleasant experiences with bees, right? I can just remember myself being younger, literally running across away from bees in the gardens or being stung by one by putting my hand in the wrong place. And we actually have uh, a relative negative perspective of bees, not because we don't appreciate them, but because of pain or certain experiences. So for you, how did this all come about that the passion grew from, I mean, where did the passion even come from? Were you loved by bees as a kid or you just always kind of had them around? I mean, where did it come from and how did it land you in this it just sort of came from um, curiosity. And when you become curious about something, um, a good human being will wish to explore it further because uh, part, of the, part of a bee's success in the world is their ability to adapt to a changing global environment. Imagine all the ecological and uh, external geographical disasters that have happened over 80 million years and the bees are still here saying, we're fine guys, you know, but let's not push it too far. Um, that they've been very adaptable. They're not going to be adaptable forever. That's impossible and uh, to anticipate. But let's say that um, my charm in bees really started as a project of curiosity. Then when I got closer in, two things really happened. I think to illustrate the gap between somebody who is fundamentally uh, attracted to bees, as I increasingly was, and somebody who is coming from your direction, Michael, where mm. my wife, Sarah, is allergic to bee stings. 
Right. She won't okay. fall down, you know, unconscious, but she will have to go and lie down and sleep for three hours to, after a bee sting. There's no, it's not like she has, you know, um, 10 seconds to get to bed or anything, but she has to stop what she's doing. It's like having a very heavy sudden flu for her. Sure. So she was not that impressed when I started increasing my passion for bees and beekeeping, but she did come along to the introductory sessions and see what it's all as my beekeeping um, excitement increased, I was working you know, still very much in the city until 2016. So that was 10 years previously that I started keeping bees. And it got to the stage where um, we started winning major awards. So we won Best Honey in London at the National Honey Show in 2011. We won it last year uh, as well. And we, we had various events that happened in my beekeeping career where we had high recognition for our honey. We had people, you know, chefs, uh, wanting us to design, install, and build apiaries um, for them. For example, at Soho Farmhouse down in Oxfordshire. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've done all that, and that got, got me moving towards being in business with bees rather than just having them on my roof. But in the meantime, my wife in the slow lane had suddenly got turbocharged and a year and a half ago, she published a book called Planting for Honeybees, which has been published in five different languages. Amazing. And she's also become a highly trained honey sommelier, having gone to the advanced honey academic um, sensory analysis of 19 different monofloral honeys. Anyway, so just to say, the people who have start up on the wrong side of bees, like my wife did, can end up, my gosh, you know, speeding past me and my beekeeping right. with all of these wonderful things of you know honey uh, tasting expertise and uh, a published author for planting for honeybees which is Amazing. part of that educational urge i'm just going to interrupt you for one second only because i just and obviously for you guys listening at home i'm in london at my home and dale's at his home so every now and then there's a little bit of a, a technical bump so I just wanted to just double check just because I lost it in my ears. But what were you, tell me again about a honey sommelier. So a honey sommelier is basically somebody who's been trained um, to analyze honey on a sensory basis. So it's a tasting based skill set where you take 19 monofloral honeys from the Italian honey canon and mm. you taste them all individually. They then will taste them when they're fermented. They'll taste them when they're mixed together. They'll taste them when they're put in alcohol. And you have to try and retrieve those flavors from those different environments where the honey goes. So that's what Sarah's trained at the advanced course in Bologna, having been there twice now for the uh, initial foundation course and, and, and the advanced. So um, she's one of, I think, three honey sommeliers in the UK. Wow who uh, are able to bring that tasting discipline and a lot of fun to the tasting table for our core, our core clients are chefs, hotels and restaurants and bartenders. Oh, wow, so that's, those that's guys have palates yeah. that are trained. So they absolutely. respond to that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's really fascinating. I mean, as well for people listening at home, we'll put uh, in the show notes, some of those links to obviously all of Dale's work, but some of Sarah's, you know, books and details, and you know, because this very much is a conversation about expansion and giving people more awareness. I mean, one thing I always like to ask, especially in this, and this being a, a unique situation, because your wife is, or is, was, is, is allergic to yeah. um, I mean, what was that like from a, uh, how did that, how did that impact or affect your personal relationships? Was that a sense of, for the first phase, it was a bit, 
button heads and then it kind of came back together? I mean, was there a journey in that for you guys? No, I think, I think my wife was used to me having sort of 10-year uh, hobbies. So I, I, when the children were born, I was much taken with um, deploying small model soldiers from the 15th century uh, on a tabletop. Uh, then I, I, I bought a part share and a, a horse. So we go off to race meetings uh, in deep countryside in the UK and watch horses r- run around in circles. But, but she probably thought this was just another one of those passing hobbies that was going to keep me busy for a few years and then would, would fade away. Her family obviously thought I was going to kill her um, with bees, but uh, uh, for various reasons, uh, it's difficult to arrange a life insurance policy for Sarah that would make it worth killing her. So we decided that was not a credible option. There'd be no motive (laughs) for me to actually slay her with bees. So uh, we didn't have any personal issues. I mean, Sarah, I think, you know, watched me from a distance as I was getting on with things. I suppose as the continued recognition of the excellence of the honey and the... um, sturdiness of the apiaries we set up and the way that we worked with bees and passing you know the various exams that you take with bees uh, she saw me going to higher levels of interest she met fellow beekeepers she came to the national honey show she came to the award ceremonies for the honey we produce and um, she just you know quietly built herself an engine to propel her right to the front of the stage in other parts of honey. Because after all, planting is the beginning of the whole bee, honey, ecology purpose. And honey, which she has as her final tasting sommelier role, is the very end of that process. And I'm the guy who fills in the middle. I keep the bees and mm. tend their needs and make sure that everything is working. And if the hive is healthy, guess what? There's going to be some honey at the end of the year. With any luck, there'll be enough honey for you to take some. But, you know, the nice thing is we have a continuum of expertise, really. Sarah at the planting end, me in the middle with the bees, Sarah at the end with the honey. Right. Amazing. I mean, it's great to hear these kind of relationships flourish in this sense. And, and I find it's really fascinating as well, this whole journey with bees, because it very is, like I said at the beginning, is there's a lot of people with familiarity to bees and of course honey. But I mean, I, I would go as far as to say, there's going to be very few people who have ever met a beekeeper or have been around a hive of bees in this capacity. So it is really interesting to hear kind of the, the inside view on this. Hey guys, and welcome to this week's T2 Tea Break, which is our little moment to sit back and pause and enjoy a cup together. Now this week we're talking about apple maple muffin, which is a really beautiful green tea and quite unique than any green teas I've had before. Nikki, as always, is here, our show producer and resident tea lover. I mean, you've got the green tea in front of you. I've got it here with me. What do you think? This is unlike any green tea I've ever had as well. I'm a massive lover of green tea. So it's quite different for me to be able to see it in this world. I think the first thing you'll notice about it is when you open the packet and crack it open, you'll get this smell and it's just extraordinary. It really transports you to that moment when you're just about to buy or make your own fluffy muffin, like a just delicious muffin straight out of the oven. It's got that combination of smells. It's quite magical. Um, So the reason behind that is because it's got oat, cinnamon and apple in it, in addition to that green tea. So you get something really special with the flavour. 
I think most people see green tea as like the healthy wellness tea, but this is kind of, you still get all the benefits of the green tea. So all the goodness that brings you, all the antioxidants, but it then has this indulgent flavor. So for me, it's kind of a perfect combo. Yeah. To be fair, I'm I'm not a massive tea, uh, green tea drinker, but I mean, this one's really, really nice. But also I think it's because I've been making it wrong the whole time, which I've just learned. Now you tell me about this. So what is the right way to make green tea? So as you said, a lot of people are not, a, maybe not a fan of green tea. Maybe you think it's quite bitter, the flavor's not quite right. The thing is with it is to use, so 80% boiling water and then 20% cold water because you want the water to be 80 degrees. If you use it too hot, it burns the tea and that's what brings out that bitterness. And also something to be conscious of is the time. So you want to have it ready for a maximum of three minutes. Any longer than that, and again, you get that bitterness. So it's just something to be conscious of when you make it is the time and also the temperature of the water. So once you get those two things right, you might discover that it's got something else that you didn't expect. Great. I mean, absolutely. And I will be trying that and doing that from now on. All right, guys. Well, that is this week's tea, the apple maple muffin, which is the green tea. Uh, You can find out more about it on the website, t2t.com, to find out more about this tea or any teas in the range. As we enjoy these last moments of the tea break, maybe just sit back and close your eyes. And as always, just breathe. Now back to the conversation. Could you explain to me, Dale, the life's uh, maybe not the 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 cycle of 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 beekeeping like is it done in months is it done in years how seasons yeah sure so um beekeeping in our view is a high knowledge low intensity activity so what we don't want you to be doing is poking your head inside a beehive when it suits you you put yourself inside a beehive when you need to do that for the welfare and the correct development of the bees so we will not visit beehives really from now until February next year. Basically, they're out there, they've got their food, they're hunkering down, they don't need us poking around, they'll just do what they need to do to occasionally when it's warm, fly out and bring water into the hive. Bees don't store water in the hive, they store honey, they store pollen, they store propolis, um, tree gum, but they don't store water. Um, So they bring that in when they can to dilute the honey and feed it to their young as that happens. So, so, you know, during winter, they are not hibernating. They're in a live cluster, like a sort of rugby ball shape. And the queen is at the middle and they just stay there. So they retain warmth. As spring comes, they start to, the queen will lay more eggs once the days start getting longer. They'll start eating more food and feeding that to the baby bees and they'll gently expand that whole cluster into more of a hive filling entity over the spring months. And by the time you have spring flowers coming, they have sufficient bees to go out and take that nectar and pollen from the spring flowers and bring it back to the hive and keep the growth of the hive going. When you look at a a bee, remember you you see a single individual item, but They're not like us. They don't have their own fashion sense, Twitter accounts, and personal ambitions. That they have, that they're, they're one superorganism, all the bees in the hive. They all smell the same because the queen's pheromones are the smell that it is, belongs to that hive. All of the hive at this time of year is full of female worker bees, all of whom are the queen's daughters. 
So they're socially really cohesive. So they're living through this period all for one and one for all. It's like, you know, um, that they aren't individuals in the sense that we human beings understand individuality, sure. but they are an individual entity as a, a group of bees. So in the spring, when they start getting bigger and bigger and bigger, they then need more space because the expansion of these bees as they become um, as a hive bigger means that we put more boxes on the hive to give them that room to expand and also to store honey in. So that phase of summer is obviously gloriously busy for them. They're hauling back as much nectar as they can, feeding their youngsters, and just like the equinoxes will do for a lot of natural things, on the 22nd of June or 23rd of June, which is the absolute, sorry, the actual sort of seasonal high of the longest day of the year, mm -hmm. after that, the queen will start laying fewer eggs because she knows after the 22nd, 23rd of June that winter is coming. Whereas we haven't even started going on our summer holidays at that time of year, sure. but they have a different cycle to us. Also, you know, you have to recognize that bees inside a hive don't communicate the way we're communicating now. We're communicating through sound and vision. Think about it in the hive, it's dark, there's no yeah. vision, and sound is just a low buzz. Yeah. So there's very little audible communication in a beehive. They communicate through scent, smell, and vibration. So when I open up a beehive, I turn off those human senses, or you demote them in your category of experience, and you bump up the other senses. So you want to have your smell sense enhanced, because bees will tell you when they've had enough time being inspected by you. The smell will change. The noise will change. You want to hear what the noise they're making. Um, you can tell whether a beehive is queenless or not by simply taking the top off and listening to them. Sure. There are lots of things you just have to get a different sensory world as you go through that beehive. So in a full beehive in the summer, it's a total joy. They're flying in and out like crazy. They're, love, they're happy to see you. And um, you know, the days are long. Uh, they're working from the first thing in the morning to the last thing at night. Then in the autumn, any surplus honey that we can take away, we will separate the bees. When it comes to taking the honey harvest, we uh, treat the bees very gently. Uh, we don't want to traumatize them. So we use essentially a one-way valve, which means that they can get out of the honey box down into the brood box where all the other bees are, but they can't come back in to the honey box. So in their natural circulation, they end up uh, being all in the brood box where the bees make more bees and empty in the um, area of surplus honey storage. So we don't have to fight them for mm. the honey. We don't want to be in any way um, you know, making their lives miserable by showing them we're taking it away. They just aren't there when the honey um, is taken away. So that honey disease levels are, are low. So we, we look out uh, in the early spring and the late autumn for any signs of bee disease, of which there are like human diseases, many and varied. In fact, um, it won't surprise you to know, I suppose, that we've had an epidemic of bee disease this year. Sure. Um, it's not a virus like COVID-19, it's a bacterium. Um, and it's called a European fowl brood. And uh, London had zero outbreaks of European fowl brood in 2015. And that's been steadily going up, and its uh, last count is 96 outbreaks in London this year. So uh, that is a dramatic increase. And it speaks to that density question, too. Mm. If we have this huge density of hives, just like you know, people packed densely into an area, that's a very high vector for transmission of disease. 
So you know, it's not just the bees not having sufficiently, um, we're, we're not giving them enough food to eat for all the bees to thrive, but also there's a level of disease out there which is uh, also threatening their welfare. And these two things are connected. It's to do with the actual density of the bees in an area. Right. I mean, it very much uh, speaks to the similarities of, of human density, of, of how much unrest can happen when we start to put too many things together, too many people together, too many buildings together. So it very much is, you know, a, a, a very easy connection between that ecology of how life exists. I mean, so can I ask you a question? Because it's just probably more of ignorance on my sense is, I mean, what does a suburban beehive look like? I mean, obviously, it's probably not the ones you see when you're out in the forest. But I mean, is it you know, are we talking shoe boxes? Or are we talking garbage bins? Like, what? Are, what is size, yeah. shape? What, what is it? So, um, it can present in lots of different ways. I would say that uh, the standard thing is a a box, essentially, uh, more or less square box, sort of eighteen inches across, um, eighteen inches down that we use, and it it sits there looking like a box. You know, if I put one on the pavement outside. Uh, a major department store, nobody would notice it was a beehive. It would just sort of look like a box, a crate. So the fact that we then put nice metal roofs on to keep the rain out and insulation underneath that roof to keep the metal building block is wood, normally cedar, because cedar retains the uh, oils naturally in the wood much better. And so it doesn't perish by being left out in the open as uh, a wood which gives up its natural uh, oils and resins a lot easier. So um, that's the fundamental building block of a beehive, the brood box where the bees make more bees. Now you can have variations on that. We do have shoebox sized beehives Mm -hmm. and those are breeding nuclei. So that's where you want to use just what we beekeepers um, charmingly call a cup full of bees which is not exactly a strict measurement term you use anywhere else in the world, apart from a cup full of tea. But even then, it's different sized cups. So no one really knows what a cup full of bees is, but it's not very many bees. And you can put that into a breeding nucleus with a, a, a queen bee that's been already hatched, a virgin queen bee. And she can then f- be fed by those bees, looked after by those bees, and fly to mate and come back to that small shoebox hive and then start laying eggs and do all the normal things that queen bees do. And then you can assess from this very small sample whether that queen bee is doing all the right things. The bees are calm, the bees are industrious, she's laying worker brood, doing all the things that means she can be promoted to be a queen in a full hive. We are not taking a huge risk with lots of bees and her being a bad-tempered queen or a, uh, an ineffective queen or a non-mated queen who just lays male eggs rather than male and female eggs. So there are lots of things in which, you know, we can use a smaller sample of bees to achieve a test result that will get us into good position for later in the year. And then there are bigger hives. There are decorative hives like the WBC hive, which is a sort of pagoda shape that goes uh, and looks very sort of sweet and charming and is a typical country hive. And that essentially is the same wooden crate structure, but inside a hull. So mm-hmm. the, the, there's a, a separation between the crate and the hull of about that much to give insulation from the wind, some heat insulation, and and makes it look prettier to the human eye. So there are lots of different sorts of beehives, absolutely. And that's just in this country. You know, in other countries, in Scotland, there's a different, there's a Smith hive, which is a slightly smaller hive. 
Uh, people use Langstroth hives in America, which is named after the guy who found the last major scientific advance in beekeeping was in 1852, when the gloriously named um, uh, Reverend Lorenzo Langstroth uh, discovered bee space. And bee space is the space that two bees need to pass on between each other, between the frames of honey that they have. So if you give them that space, they'll be happy. If you give much space, they'll start filling it in and, and putting brace comb in it, putting building wax across it. And if you give them too, too little, they'll just fill that full of propolis and make a mess of things. So the point is that that then meant that you could remove bee frames from hives and put them into another hive before everything was stuck. I see. So you had, and this made modern beekeeping possible anyway, a diversion. But it does mean that technology in beekeeping is slow you know, even the recently um, popular, for whatever reason, I don't quite understand, Flow Hive is just a minor uh, tweak on a 1940s American uh, patent, which had um, metal moving parts rather than the Flow Hive that has uh, plastic moving sure. parts. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's really, really fascinating. And obviously, you know, there it, it feels as there's a lot of thought and design industriousness that has gone into domestic beekeeping or industrial beekeeping. I guess my question for you is when we talk about this, the context of ecology and sustainability, what, what are the pros and the cons of human intervention in beekeeping? That's a really good point. I mean, there's a, a beekeeping movement called natural beekeeping and they just, uh, well, anybody who puts bees in a hive, in a box, okay, is a beekeeper. So technically, I think what these people generally do is put bees in boxes and then just walk away and say, aren't you glad I found your box and leave the bees to build their comb and do their thing without ever looking inspected for disease or whatever. They're, they're just saying, your bees, here's a box, off you go. They might even find you know, there, there are other ways of doing it in other cultures like log hives in Africa, where sure. you have hives and logs and you have... Um, uh, all sorts of uh, amazing contraptions in Eastern Europe where you have wagons full of beehives that travel around to the various places to farm different harvests, uh, pollinate them. So, um, you know, there are lots of different ways of, um, uh, of, of seeing bees in the world in hives. But I would just say in all cases, what they're doing is, is uniquely going out into the world to visit uh, flowers and trees and shrubs, all of which are perfectly adapted over time to have a compact with the bees. Here's the deal. I'll give you this sweet nectar if you will take this pollen from one of my variety to another. And honeybees are very efficient at doing that. Unlike other bees, honeybees are very species, have high species fidelity. When they go out to forage, they will be foraging on one thing only. And that means that when you see a honeybee coming back to the hive, the pollen on its leg, where it stores the pollen, is all one color, because it's only been to one sort of plant. But that's very efficient for the plant. It means the plant's getting intense pollination from only the things that are the same as that plant. You know, so it, its own species is being pollinated very efficiently. And that's great for the plant, and it's great for the bees. So you know, there are great benefits that honeybees bring that other bees who have more random feeding patterns don't bring. But nonetheless, you know, there's room for everybody in this world, lots of different ways to achieve the end of pollination and, you know, the, 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 the good ends of pollination, the, the goals of pollination. So, you know, we're really 
trying to make sure that we strike the right tone of promoting honeybee uh, goodwill, mm. but not forgetting the other bees and the other pollinators who coexist with us and with other bees and you know, similarly have a, a, a right to be in the world and a right to thrive. And, and, and our city environment, you know, the biggest threat to bees uh, in the current world is habitat loss. So in the city, you are the archetypal habitat loss. So you know, as green space disappears for development, for all sorts of proposals and things, or, or even become great mown areas of grass, which are not particularly productive, then there's less for bees to eat. And uh, even putting up green roofs and then putting decent plantings on those that will be beneficial is no substitute for just a wild expanse of land. So, uh, you know, the cities need help. We organize plantings in our local parks with permission from the uh, authorities, but we do get uh, sometimes some funding from them, uh, grants. Uh, sometimes also uh, what we like to do is to involve local businesses in the project. So we have a volunteer groups who come out and some of them have never handled a plant before. They've never seen a root ball. They've never dug a hole to put you know, a small shrub or a herb into the ground. And when they've done that, they feel they have ownership of that right. particular plant and that particular event. And they will come back and visit that space because they've been part of it. So we want to rejoin people to the natural world. And it's amazing how much joy people can gain from those really simple connections, whether it's holding a frame of bees in your hand and looking at them right close up, or whether it's putting a hole in the ground, getting it nice and wet, putting in a little bit of soil to get it ready to pat down, loosening the the, the, the root ball and getting that all bedded in. These things are all clearly so positive for people's mental um, uh, happiness and for their ability to connect to a place and to a concept, you know, the concept of I am part of this world. I am just doing something good for the world. And my gosh, you know, that's something I don't do every day in my normal life. And you know, that's a recognition we want to push along the road uh, you know, in emotional education as much as an intellectual education Absolutely. in the environment. And, and I think you, what you touch on is such a really powerful message right now, this aspect of emotional education, but I mean, but also this experiential education, this sense of putting your hands back in the dirt, putting out your hands so you can kind of, you know, experience what life is like as a bee, all these kinds of things were actually more and more these days humans, especially living in cities, have a disconnection with the natural world, have a disconnection to maybe uh, doing things that actually help uh, plants grow, you know, to actually get themselves to that place of being of service to the ecological state of the world, as opposed to maybe just thinking that all your vegetables come out of a box or out of a fridge, and that all of your honey comes out of a jar, and that it actually wasn't you know, actually that the further conversation really is that there is nature at work uh, right before your eyes when you're in front of it and you can really feel a participatory act of being a part of our, our, our world and our environment. Sure, but there are so many traps you can fall into when you go down that road without taking the right precautions. Mm. If you go to a supermarket and you pick up a jar of honey from a shelf and it says it's 
blended, uh-huh. you have to ask yourself, why did anyone blend that honey? Because you know what? Bees make honey, and we keep that honey intact. We keep it as the bees made it. We do not blend honeys. We do not eat honeys above the high temperature. We do not take anything out of the honey by filtration. So these honeys are essentially uh, highly industrialized, commoditized blends of honey from all around the world. They're bought on three bases, which is color, viscosity, and price. There's nothing to do with flavor. They add the flavor in the laboratory. They superheat the honey, kills the enzymes. They microfilter the honey, takes out the pollen. Why? Well, you can't trace back a honey with improper origins Mm. uh, if it hasn't got pollens in it because the pollens will tell you where it came from. And if you take the pollens out, then that makes it like having no fingerprints. You can't be traced. So um, we have this huge industrial complex, which happened really after the Second World War, where people have commoditized honey. And if you think you're helping bees by buying commoditized honey, absolutely think again. What you're doing is exploiting uh, essentially people, subsistence farmers in China, Argentina, and places far beyond our field of vision um, to produce uh, honey, to have it adulterated by the industrial process. Honey is the most, third most adulterated food in the world after wine and olive oil. Very simple. If you can take a pound of sugar that costs you 50p and turn it into a jar of honey, even if you're selling, uh, you know, selling it at a pound, you've doubled your money. Sure. Well, that's not difficult, is it? I mean, so, so what, what we, we see that process happening all the time. And I'm afraid that you know, the large corporates all heat their honey. They all blend their honey. And it's important, we think, to connect with your local beekeeper. I'm not asking you to buy my honey. Um, that's not a problem. What I'd love you to do is find your own local beekeeper. You might find the guy's honey at a farm shop. You might find it in a health food shop. And there'll be several local beekeepers. You can even go online and say, find my local beekeeper. Buy real honey. How about that for an idea? So don't be part of this huge conspiracy against the natural world, which is actually ending up in front of you on the shelves at low prices Sure. in the supermarket because the commodity product's been adulterated. So it's something which we need to be aware of. And looking at the label will tell you. So if it tells you the name of the person who made the honey on the, li- on, on the bottle, that's good. That's what our honey does. It tells you what my address is, what my name is. No one ever knocks on my door saying, here, this honey is no this? good. Yeah. I'm glad to say, but they could if they didn't think it was good. They know where I live. These other honeys are packed for, you know, packaged for whatever, and they're blended, and they're from all the way around the world. You'll see a blend of non-EU honeys, often as not. So it just tells you this honey is not from anywhere that you know about, anywhere that they can tell you about. The constituent parts are speculative. Mm. I like to say at the moment, you know, that what's happened to honey is that in the modern world, honey has become an ingredient of honey, i.e. what you buy on the supermarket may have some honey in it, but it's only got the honey in it to the extent that it suits them as the manufacturing process. So let's not get, you know, sort of like save the bees. Don't try and save the bees by buying supermarket honey. Try and save the bees by going and seeking out the local beekeeper. And you know, maybe even he'll show you the hives. Guess what? You know, um, all these things can happen. Maybe he can give you some ideas about what you could plant in your garden that would be good for the bees. So there are lots of 
you know, really good things that you won't get from a supermarket jar of honey that you can get by connecting with your local mm. human being who is in touch with this environment and with these creatures. Great. I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go check all the honey that I have in the house right now. I mean, and for a lot of people listening as well, and what I really love about this conversation is there obviously is a lot of, uh, uh, um, dare I say, kind of uh, emotional support to save the bees and ensuring that honey is uh, is actually honey. Uh, but I mean, what what kind of actions could I do from, let's say, this side of the conversation purely either as a everyday human and everyday consumer, aside from buying good honey, and supporting the Save the Bees message, are there actually actionable things that people can start to do in their lives? Sure. I think, uh, first of all, you, you can, if you've listened to this program and you've picked up a couple of facts only about you know, bees and what they eat, you know, trees and shrubs mostly, and if you picked up things about uh, you know, the density of bees in London, and there are different bees around that we have to consider as well as just the uh, honeybee, you might even add to that you know, when you see a Disney film, uh, you might come away with the idea that male bees were worker bees. The opposite is true. So female bees are the only worker bees in the reality of beekeeping and bees. And male bees are there to uh, eat uh, and procreate. That's it. There isn't any other sort of, they never work. They never do anything right. um, to bring any food in. They, they don't um, go out looking for things and coming back and telling people where all the good food is. They are just there to eat and, uh, and mate with a queen bee in the air. That's a complicated story. But um, in any case, uh, the important thing I would take away is you can help. Because think about the way that bees make all this honey. They bring it back in their honey stomachs. These are tiny insects. They're bringing back an infinitesimally small amount of nectar to the hive. But incrementally, if enough bees do it, you end up with... 40 kilos of honey sitting on a hive. So all those tiny contributions can make a big contribution if people are active and busy and thoughtful. So if you just have a windowsill in your flat that you could put a little earth, you know, a little earth out there in a long tub and you could put some herbs that would be things that you would use in your kitchen so you can actually have some extra flavor in your food and some fresher herbs rather than trotting off to the supermarket to buy them and, and plant those in your window box and let them grow so that some of them flower, right? Because if you don't let them flower, then the bees aren't going to get any benefit from them. But having as a little tub of flowering herbs on your windowsill is a great assist to bees. It's food for bees and it's something you can have which brightens up your environment, brightens up your dinner plate, or your herbal tea, and, and you can really have something which you can commune with the bees because they will come and you will see them and you will be able to observe bees feeding. You'll see them sticking their tongues out. You'll see them beating their wings. Lots of things will happen that will give you sort of bee TV. So, <laughs> you know, you've got a great combination. You've got entertainment, you've got flavors, you've got the benefit of knowing that you're helping the bees. And if enough people do it, that makes a difference. Absolutely. I mean, I love all of that. And I think that is a really nice way to put that in perspective, you know, allowing ourselves individuals to, to be part of, of this kind of greater bee ecosystem by just simply having some green space, having some dirt, having some plants, and just looking at it proactively and really recognizing that there is no such thing as 
too small when we're looking at collective goals. I mean, and that very much goes to, to life and society as general. Uh, I mean, Dale, this has been really, really fascinating for me. And obviously I've got, I mean, I could ask you millions of questions about the, the world of bees. And obviously um, I'm sure lots of people will follow on and message you because of this. But I mean, as we start to wrap this up, what I did want to ask you, and this is probably more of a question about Dale as opposed to the bees, which is what has been your greatest personal learning through this process of beekeeping? I think, you know, I was talking earlier on about the uh, rigidity of, you know, paid employment is that you're expected to be in a certain place at a certain time, pre-COVID anyway. And uh, that was the way that organizations worked. So that meant that you weren't conditioned to observe the changing seasons around you because you weren't changing your own daily calendar. You were doing the same thing at the same time and and there was a rigid structure. Whereas what the beekeeping environment allows you to do is recognize that change from, you know, winter being a quiet period where we're cleaning, where we're repairing, we're planning, we're building new equipment um, for the bees. And then coming into spring where the bees are being, are moving along, we're adding space for them, we're checking them for health. In summer, we're, the days are longer, so our days are longer too. So we're doing all sorts of different things at different times of year in different ways. There's a seasonality and a cyclicality which needs you to be versatile and adapted. And I think that to be a good human being or to be any good creature on God's earth, you have to be versatile because that's how evolution works, right? The successful um, species evolve as long as they're not too heavily uh, predated or impacted by negative environments. They evolve and survive. So uh, let's say that good human beings should do that too. So I, I think I had a little um, you know, chance to evolve by evolving to a more connected life as the year goes round, as the seasons change, as beekeeping allows me to do. So I think that's the biggest you know, a positive change that I can put my finger on having gone away from one particular uh, uh, aspect of my life, which I did enjoy, to another aspect, which I'm very much enjoying. So it's just a matter of life stages. Absolutely. And I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it. I mean, there is so much growth and evolution that we're always going to find within ourselves when we switch things up, change routines, break routines, and ultimately live and work from a place of passion. You know, whether you do have a full-time job or you do have the freedom to, to be creative or a bit more uh, in control of your schedule, you know, having something that we're passionate about, having something that excites us, that evolves us, that challenges us, that also is part of a bigger thing, you know, part of a, a bigger aspect of, of being a member of society and of community. So it is really, really beautiful to hear this from you as your story, but also to learn so much more about the, the need for attention on uh, bees, the sustainability of how it works as a part of our ecosystem. So I did want to thank you. And this has been really interesting. I just want to sign off with one thought because I hope I've made people enthusiastic about bees in general, honeybees in particular, and even the craft of beekeeping. Don't go jumping into beekeeping with both feet without doing a year of training on that annual cycle because you will not get it. Beekeeping is like bicycling. There are no permissions needed. Nobody can stop you um, having a hive of bees. Uh, No one can stop you riding a bicycle down the road because you don't need a license. You don't need anything or insurance. But with beekeeping, you really do, if you want to enjoy beekeeping and you want to be responsible to the bees that you are keeping, 
please go and do the proper training. And the proper training is available again if you uh, Google uh, the British Beekeepers Association, bbka.org.uk, where's my nearest association? Those guys will give you the training. They'll give you support networks. They'll give you tea and cake. They'll give you advice and love. So um, that's the way in. Don't just jump out and grab some bees. Yeah, I mean, and and I, I completely wholeheartedly support the, this, not just uh, of beekeeping, but just, you know, if you are passionate, put passion to work by learning, by giving yourself the time to, to understand. Dale Gibson, thank you so much for joining. Uh, guys, if you want to find out more about Dale and all his work at Bermondsey Street Bees, Dale, where's the best places to find you or connect with you? Yeah, so connect with us through email. So we're bermondseystreetbees.co.uk as our website. There's plenty on there about our sustainability, about our awards, about our clients, about our work with uh, the community. And you have a scrollable planting guide, 20-page planting guide that will give you uh, all you need to know about planting for bees. Uh, we're on Instagram at uh, bstreetbees. And uh, we also have a Twitter account, which is uh, bermondseybees. Normally people, of course, are sensible enough and have the same handle for Twitter and Insta, but we don't. No, keep it interesting. All right, guys. Well, as always, um, we will put these links, Dale and Burmester Street Bees, in the show notes. It'll be on the website. There'll be write-ups and articles as well, just to share more about how important it is for us to have some attention on the bees right now in the world, but also how important it is to recognize that we are never too small to make a difference when we're working towards something together. Um, thanks again, Dale, for joining. Thank you guys Pleasure. for listening. Uh, as always, uh, please stay connected to the podcast. And as always, stay connected to Just Breathe, a whole world of resources for mindfulness in the real world and ways that we can support each other together. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And we will see you next week on The Quiet Life. Take a moment to download the Just Breathe app with guided meditations, music, and soundtracks created and recorded especially to calm the mind and ease the body. We've literally put the power of mindfulness in the palm of your hands, and even more, it's free. We've created this app as a way to support our growing community, and it is for anyone and everyone ready to step into a quieter conversation. So go ahead and download the app now. It's on iPhone and Android devices, and for more information about our growing conversation on and offline, make sure you visit justbreatheproject.com where you'll find more podcasts, lots of amazing stories and video content, and conversations all around mindfulness in the real world. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at justbreathe. And don't forget to join the brewing force for good. You can receive 10% off your first order at T2T when signing up for their Tea Society. This will also bring you guys heaps of benefits such as rewards, experiences, and personalized offers. And all you have to do is head to T2T.com to start brewing the benefits and redeem your offer. Remember guys, that's T the letter, to the number, T-E-A.com. You can find the link in our show notes below.